few people have said over the days and I also really resonate, echo with that sense of um, this appreciation of being able to do a retreat in this way, in these conditions. And I was just, as we were sitting here, I was reflecting um, on that appreciation, feeling that appreciation for all of us um, coming together to practice, to be here um, in that range of conditions. And both the, the gifts of doing a retreat in this form and also the challenges that come with that. And I was just thinking about that because, for example, um, you know, I have to sit here and with, with the window um, closed. Otherwise, there'll be a lot of street noise. So that's kind of a thing that I've never had to maybe consider when I teach in a, in a meditation center. And that can be seen, you know, as, oh, that's, that's uncomfortable, maybe, to some degree. Yeah. And then what happens when um, connect to a different layer, a different aspect of the experience. Yeah. So maybe I prefer to have the window open. Yeah. But actually, that sense of offering, yeah. offering something through having it closed. Yeah. Both for you and then for potentially other people that will listen to the recording at a later time. So we can shift in that way. And that shift um, affects our experience and also affects the degree of, of dukkha that we, that we experience. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that, but I just have to give one more example <laughs> before I do. It also just came when I was sitting here just now. And um, we're, Nathan and I are staying with my mother um, and uh, we've been here quite a lot, a lot longer than planned because of Corona. So uh, here we are, the three of us, in, a, in an apartment. And um, my mum's a 79-year-old clinical psychologist. And she's just gone back to seeing some of her patients just last week to start seeing them at home again, seeing them face-to-face, -face, not just um, meeting them on the phone or online. And so this week we have this dance <laughs> between us because of COVID, she can't see them in her study, she meets them in her uh, living room, which is also the kitchen, <laughs> which is also the entrance to and from the apartment. And um, it's been really beautiful to, to see, you know, my mother's very kind, very generous, she keeps feeling like, oh, like, I don't want to disturb you, I don't want to get in your way. And it's actually, hello, we're actually staying in your house, <laughs> not the other way around. Um, but the main thing I wanted to, to touch on now is, and to share with you, because it was very strong for me as I was sitting here, uh, is what um, we've been doing with this experience, which is actually, you know, we could see this as friction. We could see this as um, something that's getting in the way. Oh, we need to plan around each other. Um, or, yeah, or we could see this as being in this hub of care and compassion. Um, for others, which is kind of how I feel it. And then the whole experience shifts, right? And the friction doesn't even arise, yeah, because there's a sense of, ah, there's all this good stuff going on here, this offering, 
to others, this support to others. Um, and that shift is kind of a lot of what I want to be speaking about uh, today and exploring, and I think kind of a big part of our exploration through the teachings. But I just wanted to share with you that sense of, that I have now, <laughs> primarily like I'm speaking from a hub of goodness, <laughs> and um, we can always connect to that. It doesn't matter where we are. You know, there doesn't need to be a therapist in the, in the room next door to us. Um, we just have that sense of uh, that's what we're aligned with. That's what we're connecting to. Yeah, that's what we're rooting in when we, um, when we offer ourselves to the world in the different ways that, that we do that. So I want to begin by just saying a little bit more about this uh, word, this concept that's very key to the, to the teachings and we've used here, um, which is the concept of dukkha. This word dukkha, D-U-K-K-H-A which we've touched on and many of you have heard, uh, usually translated as suffering, as stress, um, or as ill-being is the word I've used for it um, here, um, discomfort, dis-ease, dissatisfaction, that whole range, that whole range. And I'd like to, to offer... Um, one more way of understanding this word, which is one of the ways it can be understood from the Pali, one of the ways that it can be broken down from the Pali, the, the, the original language, the language it's in. Um, so one way this word dukkha can be understood is um, like the axle, the, the pole that connects two wheels. Yeah? When that connection isn't very good, <laughs> Yeah, so we can say an ill-fitting wheel or an ill-fitting um, axle. And if we think about um, the time of the Buddha, when uh, the vehicles that had wheels were kind of carts, yeah. so if the wheel, if the axle and the wheel didn't fit well together, what you'd get if you were riding on that cart is um, what Joseph Goldstein calls a bumpy ride. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when when that when that when it's not smooth, yeah, and then we're we're bumping along, yeah, we're bumping along. So that can be one understanding of this word uh, dukkha, um, and I would say it's kind of uh, when there's a sense of friction with experience, yeah, when there's a sense of friction with life, when things aren't smooth, yeah, but we feel that friction. Does that make sense to people? Yeah. Yeah, so sometimes, um, yeah, it's really worth getting into the words and into the language and the images yeah, of them because it can give us a sense of what does this actually mean, the sense of friction um, with life. And like everything in life, yeah, dukkha too is, um, is constructed. Yeah, it's fabricated, it's built up of things. And we've been speaking about that today. Nathan spoke about it this morning. Yeah, it's kind of made up of elements, that experience. And so I want to touch on that a little bit more um, in the, um, the way Nathan spoke about it and just break it down again a little bit. How does dukkha get fabricated? How does it get constructed? How does it get built up, created?
created. Um, so there's contact, there's sense contact between the world, yeah, the world of the senses and the mind. Yeah, and that can be through uh, any of the senses. Yeah, something visual, something that we hear, something that we smell, we taste, we feel, yeah, through the body. And in Buddha Dharma, the mind is the sixth sense. So also what we think, also our mental world, what we think and feel. So there'll be contact between consciousness, between awareness, yeah, and, and the sense world. And in that contact, there'll be this Vedana that we were talking about. This hedonic classification will kind of get put onto the experience, be added onto the experience, that experience of contact. And then from the Vedana, um, the Vedana will escalate, as Nathan was talking about. So that initial unpleasant or pleasant or neither one or the other yeah, will then escalate into some form of wanting more of uh, wanting to hold on to or pushing away, yeah. resisting or reaching out, grasping after something. And we can call that um, push-pull is one of the, the ways our, our friend Rob used to call this uh, process. We're pushing something away, we're pulling something towards us. Yeah, that's kind of the process of that escalation, which that carries on in layers and layers and layers. And with those layers, as they build up, more friction and more contraction, yeah, more tension in the system, yeah, and we can feel it in the body, yeah, as there's more going on, more, more tension, more contraction in the body, um, and all of that is then dukkha, <laughs> yeah, so the dukkha's already arisen somewhere along that and just gotten stronger and stronger in that process, so layers of um, reactivity, yeah, one on top of the other. And important to say here that that doesn't depend on whether the initial experience w- was pleasant or unpleasant. So this can happen with pleasant things or unpleasant things. Yeah, and I'll, I'll unpack that a little bit more. So what do we take away from this? Yeah, what do we take away from this? When there's dukkha, there's contraction. And when there's contraction, there's dukkha. Those two come together, that contraction, that friction, comes along with dukkha. They depend on each other and they arise um, together. And we know this in our experience. Yeah, we know this in our experience. We know this in the body. I think I spoke about it yesterday in the instructions. Yeah, that sense of when there's unpleasantness in the body, then there's, the body tends to contract and tense around that, so we know that in the body, whenever any kind of unpleasant will contract, any kind of grasping, trying to hold on to the pleasant, there'll be contraction, there'll be the sense of limitation and of tension. So we feel it in the body, and we can also sometimes feel it in, in awareness itself. Yeah, that awareness itself will um, become smaller around something. Typically we can feel it more around unpleasant, but it's true also um, around the pleasant. So I want to I wanna, um, give some examples of this, of how we know this in, in our experience. Um, so in the practice that we were doing yesterday of uh, noticing the unpleasant or the painful in the body experience, 
and then um, opening to that yeah in some way yeah relaxing that um, opening to that experience in some way relaxing the tension in the body or seeing the changing nature there were different ways that we were um, opening to that experience so if we look at that experience again and even through our memory when we meet the unpleasant there is that contraction and that um, friction yeah with the resistance and then when we do the practices of opening or allowing, same with the Vedana today, yeah, staying with just the unpleasant without the layers of reactivity, um, what happens is that there's more spaciousness, yeah, and there's less contraction. Yeah. So it all all comes together and we'll kind of play with this more over today and tomorrow. It all comes together. And I had a really um, been having some a lot of opportunity to play with this in the last kind of ten days or two weeks, um, where I've been I'm feeling good I'm feeling fine now. But I had about ten days when I really wasn't feeling well, and I had all kinds of weird symptoms, including shortness of breath, which is not something I'm used to. Um, and the practice was so helpful. <laughs> yeah, so I was feeling mild shortness of breath it wasn't like I couldn't really breathe but I felt like I wasn't breathing normally and it was like and then that's the kind of experience if you've had it uh, in your life which then um, because it's difficult to breathe anxiety builds up very quickly and it kind of is difficult to start telling the difference so here the practice was really um, useful so there's breathlessness yeah and then bringing the awareness to the breathlessness to the unpleasantness aspect of it and relaxing the contraction because there's contraction there because it's unpleasant yeah and the contraction when there's breathlessness is the last thing that we want right it makes it even more difficult to breathe so relaxing yeah relaxing that capacity to relax the contraction yeah and then the breath flows more smoothly yeah, breath um, flows more sm- smoothly and even more important than that the sense of problematic goes down and the dukkha goes down the sense of suffering with the experience goes down yeah. this is quite um, yeah, it's a place where the practice is really helpful yeah, really helpful and so we can see this when we open to the painful or the unpleasant, the relationship with, with dukkha and contraction. We can equally uh, see this when we open to the pleasant. Yeah? And I want to bring that in as well, because that may be less um, intuitively clear to us. Yeah? So um, I'll use that same trajectory of my experience I'm sorry that this has a bit of become quite a self-centered talk. Um, I'm apologizing for that, but I'll just use that same trajectory of experience of feeling better after feeling not so well for 10 days and feeling a lot better. And then um, that's quite pleasant, right? That change of suddenly feeling normal, yeah? having the normal amount of energy, not feeling very tired being able to breathe normally and not needing to constantly check, am I breathing normally or not? Yeah. 
So there's a lot of pleasure and well-being, yeah, and a good feeling that comes with that, yeah. And here's when it gets interesting. So when I watch my experience, when we watch a pleasant experience, um, it doesn't usually stay at that level. Yeah. So if I use this example, there's um, there might be, oh, I really, okay, I'm feeling better now. I really want to stay better. I really hope that doesn't come back. Yeah. It's come, it's gone up and down a few times. Maybe it's just one of those. Yeah. And it's going to come back again. And then the tension starts to build up. Yeah. And then we might find ourselves, or I might find myself, feeling some worry. Yeah, is it coming? Isn't going to come again or not? And so my experience then changes from a sense of um, of well-being, of enjoying feeling better, <laughs> to one of worry and anxiety. Okay, and the initial thing was pleasant. Okay, when I remember the practice, I have more possibilities. Okay, I have more possibilities. What are those possibilities? To stay with that pleasant and to enjoy it, like we've been doing. To really open to that, ah, great, you know, I'm feeling better. Yeah, I can walk for an hour, you know, I can uh, breathe freely. Whatever that is, I can bring enjoyment. So the difference, I hope that Nathan said this this morning, I think, um, but really important to see this isn't a practice that is telling us not to enjoy ourselves. Yeah. It's actually the opposite, yeah? When we can stay and not build up, when we have awareness of contraction um, and we can um, kind of rest into what is going well and enjoy it without contracting, without grasping, without holding on, or at least with less of that. Yeah, our experience feels better. Yeah, and stay with the well-being of feeling better and relax any contraction that starts building up around that experience. So what what can we see? Yeah, when we look when we look at our experience in this way, we can see um, how experience is fabricated. Yeah. We can see that our experience, yeah, is made up of all these elements, of all these components. Yeah. It's the way we're relating, it's not just the thing. It's the contraction, yeah, or the relaxation in the body and the mind. Yeah. It's the interest. Yeah. It's built up, it's fabricated, it's constructed. And how we relate and respond plays such a, a key part in that. So that's one thing we can see which is really um, helpful to see and to know and we need to see it again and again. It's not, not enough usually to see it once. Yeah, to see it again and again. We can also see how dukkha and contraction arise together. Yeah. Which, yeah, I know I've already said it about five times. <laughs> I'm going to keep saying it because it's such a gate to freedom. Yeah, it's such a gate to well-being. And we see that relationship, that dukkha and contraction co-arise. And when one goes down, so does the other. Yeah. And we can also see that along with dukkha and contraction, also what we call, what I just called before, the push-pull. Yeah. The, the reactivity or the holding on. 
you know, pushing away or the holding on. That too arises with dukkha and contraction. Um, and that part in the language of the teachings is usually called craving. Yeah. And the Pali is tanha, T-A-N-H-A, tanha, which literally means thirst. And I'm saying that because that just gives us such a beautiful um, experiential feeling of that thirst for something. The push-pull, the escalation, getting something for me. Getting this for me, pushing this away for me, holding on to this for me. So this morning, Nathan kind of said again and again that Vedana is not in the object. It's not in the object. It's not in the phenomena. It's not in the appearance. Neither is the dukkha. Really important. Not in the object. Not in the object. So wisdom teachings, and I'll come back to this, wisdom teachings uh, really encourage us to to see this and to see that opening, welcoming, uh, coming towards life. These are all ways of relating to experience that reduce dukkha and bring well-being. So the dukkha or its opposite, the sukha, the well-being, the happiness, are not in the object, but how we relate, how we relate. So when we open, welcome, come towards life, we're shifting something. We're relaxing the contraction and we're relaxing um, the craving, relaxing the tanha. And this experience of um, relaxing the craving and the contraction is something we know a lot better than we think we do. (laughs) A lot of the time. So um, I'm going to give another example. This one you'll be relieved to know is not about me. Um, this is a um, experiment, some research they did in the U.S. Uh, quite a few years ago, and um, they were doing some research on happiness and kind of the process of how happiness uh, gets built up, what makes us happy. Um, and they decided to particularly explore the, the happiness of shopping. Already questionable, but they, they got some good, some interesting data. So um, they sent people shopping in a, in a mall and, uh, and they had, uh, they had them um, they had all these measuring apparatus equipment on them and they were measuring all kinds of things to do with the skin and the temperature and I don't know what, which they associated with happiness, the sense of happiness and excitement. And, um, and so they sent them out into the shopping mall and people went around and looked around shops and found something to buy and went and bought it and walked away. And the interesting thing that they found is that the measurement of happiness that they were taking yeah, in that whole process 
uh, they were really interested to see, and I'm also very interested to see, where it peaked, where it was the highest, when people um, experienced the highest measure of happiness or um, yeah, excitement around the shopping experience. And usually if I'm doing this in a, in a hall, I ask people to guess. So I'm going to let you guess if anyone wants to guess in the chat. You, you can. In that whole process, yeah, walking around, seeing something you want, taking it off the shelf, um, going to pay for it, walking out of the store. Where do you think, if you don't know the experiment and you haven't heard me tell it before, <laughs> before they buy it? So what do you mean before, it's before they buy it, before they pay for it, or before they, um, or when they see it, or... I don't know, John, if you want to be more specific. Seeing the thing you want when they see it, when they take it from the shelf, great. The anticipation is more than the actuality. Yeah. First contact with the item, spotting it on the shelf. Great. Thanks, Thanks guys, for guessing. It's really great. Makes it much more interesting before payment, before they get to the shop. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Definitely true for me. For me, a shopping mall is a, is a version of hell, but uh, that's quite personal. Um, I think we had a few more. Okay, someone, someone admits that they've heard it already. I think you probably did. Okay, so when does it peak? The moment of peak happiness. Yeah, the moment they touch the item. Another guess. The moment of peak happiness, according to the measurements they were doing, was the moment when they were standing at the till. They were standing in front of the checkout with their credit card in their hand. Yeah? And they were offering their credit card to pay for the item, but they hadn't gotten it yet. Okay? So they knew they were getting it. They were paying for it. They were finalizing the deal. Yeah? And actually, this is true for all of us. If, if you know, at moments when we enjoy shopping, it's not just them. Um, so for most people, the moment when we are paying, when we're handing the, the credit card or the money over, but we haven't yet uh, received our, our purchase and started walking out the, the store, that's the moment when, um, when the peak is. And when we think of this whole experience in... Um, in the context of Buddha Dharma, what happens there is what starts to go down is the craving. Yeah. So we already know, yeah, we're paying for it. We know it's ours, but we haven't gotten it yet. And at that moment, we know it's mine. And from there, that's the peak. From there, the craving starts to go down. Yeah, because it's already mine. I got it. I'm walking out. <laughs> got the bag. And the craving starts to go down. Does this make sense to people? I can't see all of you, so yeah, let me know in the chat if it doesn't. And this is really interesting because this is also what um, the Buddha Dharma would say. We mistake, yeah, we mistake the lessening of craving, yeah, with getting the object. It's so close in time. Our minds are structured in that way, and we think the happiness is in the object, yeah. We think it's getting that thing. Actually, so much of the experience is to do with the lessening of craving. When that craving starts to go down, when that contraction starts to release. Okay, so 
the interesting thing for us, you know, as, um, as human beings is the way we're usually wired, our habits are, that that craving will go down and um, immediately or after some time, depending on our makeup, uh, we'll start looking for something else. Yeah. And so this is around shopping, but it might be around anything else. Yeah, we'll um, have a nice experience and then that will fade and then we'll start looking for something else. The craving just keeps, um, it keeps coming. That's that sense of thirst. Yeah, that's so powerful here. It just keeps then attaching to another object. Keeps attaching to another object. When we don't see clearly... Yeah, when we don't see clearly, when we don't understand how our experience is made up and what the possibilities are in that. So, you know, the question for us as human beings, do we need to keep going through this papancha, <laughs> this escalation of life uh, again and again? Yeah, Getting something and then that craving loosening and then after some time it comes up again yeah, because we haven't gone to the root of, of what brings happiness. We haven't gone to the root of what um, frees us. So how do we access relief from stress? How do we access re- relief from ill-being? Yeah, is there another possibility? Something that's available um, across conditions. It's not dependent on conditions or circumstances in the same way. And certainly not on external conditions and circumstances. And so part of that possibility is what we've been doing here in the practice. It's that opening of the range of possibility, opening the range um, of what we allow to be an experience. Yeah, Reducing, lessening that craving much closer <laughs> to the root. Yeah. Relaxing the contraction, relaxing that, um, reaching out for something or pushing something away um, in order to bring ease, in order to, in order to bring release. When we uh, demand less from our experience, more interest is possible, more vibrancy, more aliveness is possible. And the whole thing uh, becomes less about me and mine. Yes, beautiful additional aspect of it becomes less about me and mine. What's in it for me? So we're opening the range of what we allow to be in experience and we're opening the range of what's possible. And we're asking, you know, what does it take? What would it mean to be at ease beyond preference, beyond personal preference? What would it be to live uh, with less dependence on things going my way? On things going my way. And we can find peace within uncertainty. We can find peace uh, within discomfort. We know that. Yeah? We've all had moments of that in our lives. We can find peace within uncertainty and within discomfort. And this actually increases our capacity to attend to our experience. Yeah, this is also the interesting thing. 
Yeah, if I go back to that experience of breathlessness, yeah, when I can attend to that without freaking out, I have much more possibility, yeah, much more range, much more options. Yeah. So we can increase our capacity to, to attend, to respond, to experience in wholesome and helpful ways. And when we do that, um, we can see, yeah, you know, I said this earlier, this is a seeing that we need to see again and again. We can see the dependent nature of experience. We can see any experience, not separate, not neutral, not objective. It depends on my way of looking and relating. And how can I bring even just a little bit more space into that? And over time, that change, so significant. If I just have a little bit more space, a little bit more kindness right now in this moment. So our experience dependent on the way of looking, dependent on the way of relating, not neutral in the way we take it to be. And this goes, it goes really deep, you know, really, really deep. So I want to um, give an example of this. This is more recent research um, that was done at Yale University, also in the U.S. Um, and in this in this research, they uh, had a bunch of subjects, and uh, the first thing they did was they um, asked them all kinds of questions to get a sense of what their social and political views were, where on the spectrum of social and political views they were. They were more liberal or less liberal. And they then showed everyone the same image or series of images. Yeah. And it, there were images of a demonstration taking place. Now in each group, they divided them into two groups. It was a video. Okay. So they divided them into two groups, and in each group they had some people who were more on the liberal side of the spectrum of political views and some people who were less liberal. Okay? In each group they had both. They then told one group that the video they were watching was of a protest um, against abortions. And they told the other group that the protest they were watching was a protest against some new policy of the U.S. military around um, sexual orientation, yeah. which wasn't uh, very progressive. <laughs> okay, so they told one group that the, the same video, one group it's about this, one group it's about this. And what they found was that um, even though they were all shown the same video, dependent on their views, dependent on where they were politically, socially, in their social and political views, they perceived the images, they perceived the video differently. So, for example, if they were uh, pro-abortion. 
um, they saw the demonstrators as being more violent than if they were against abortion. If they were um, pro-equal um, rights across sexual orientation, they saw the demonstrators as um, less violent than if they were against. Yeah. So the same video, the views, the political views, the social views, affect the cognition, affected what they thought they saw when they had to describe it later to the researchers. So this might be a bit of a mind boggle to, to try and get hold, kind of try and understand on the fourth day of a retreat. But the important um, point here is that dependent on the views they perceived the same video differently. Dependent on the views and what they thought they were watching. <laughs> dependent on their views and what they thought they were looking at, what kind of demonstration they thought it was. So what we perceive is not neutral. What we perceive is not neutral. It's not objective. It depends on our views. It depends on our preconceptions. It depends on how we're relating to an experience right now. So what we perceive, yeah, what we see, what we hear what we smell, what we taste, what we think. Not real in the way we take it to be. It's not real in the way we take it to be. This experience itself, right now, wherever you are, yeah. wherever you are, what you're seeing and feeling and thinking right now, not neutral and objective, in the way you might be taking it to be. Is it a beautiful day or a not beautiful day? <laughs> yeah. Was this a beautiful day or not beautiful day? It depends, yeah? It depends if we asked, um, you know, you or me, and it depends if we asked ourselves, depending on our mood and our history, and what happened just before, okay? So our experience, shaped, empty, yeah? dependently arising, dependently arising. So this is true of everything. It's true of everything, and, and I hope that you can feel the beauty of it, <laughs> and it's not freaking you out too much. It's true of everything. It's true for how we um, perceive ourselves, yeah? Not real in the way we take ourselves to be, yeah? True of how we perceive ourselves. Oh, I've always been this, yeah? Always been this. And yet, you know, this what, yeah? This collection, yeah? So it's true for the way we perceive ourselves, it's true for the way we perceive another. It's true for, what, for the objects we perceive. It's even true of time. Yeah, it's even true of time. Yeah. 
And since we've been meditating so much, you've had that experience already. <laughs> Have you had a meditation yet over this retreat where it just felt like time wasn't moving? And for sure, you know, whoever was meant to ring the bell has kind of walked away and just left us here. And maybe I didn't hear the bell and it did ring. And it just disappeared. I like telling this story. One time I was um, teaching a retreat and someone actually walked up to me because they were absolutely convinced that I'd fallen asleep and forgotten to ring the bell. They actually walked up to me in the hall <laughs> to check. Because in their perception, it just couldn't be that 45 minutes hadn't passed, you know? It was just so strong. It was, you know, so strong. And sometimes it feels like that, right? And at other times, it, you know, we can't believe that it's been 45 minutes. You know, surely not. They probably got impatient and rang the bell too early. It's okay if that hasn't happened. It doesn't happen to all of us. <laughs> but just that sense of even something like time, yeah? And with meditation, it can be really, we can really see it, yeah? Because we're so habituated to these 45-minute sits if you've done a lot of retreats. And yet, it fluctuates. Sometimes it feels long and sometimes it feels short. It's dependent. It's not real in the way we take it to be. Not that it's not real, <laughs> Neither real nor not real. Not real in the way we take it to be, believe it to be. Not the way it appears to us. So everything dependent on the way of relating in that moment. Yeah. And this opens up infinity of possibilities. Yeah? Infinity of possibilities. We can, can we feel, can we see the beauty of that possibility? Everything's dependent on the way of looking. Yeah. Everything dependent on the way of looking. Then can we feel the possibility and the calling yeah, to us yeah, to keep coming to life, to keep coming alive, to keep remembering? There's more we can do here, even if it's just a little bit. And yes, habits and tendencies will probably come back again and again. Yeah. Naive realism, that sense of, I know what I'm experiencing right now, and that's the truth. Yeah. It will probably resurface and come back. Yeah. All of that will come back, but we can keep remembering and asking the question, is this real in the way I take it to be? Is this really like this? Is this really like this? Because when we remember that, we remember that everything is changing, everything is conditioned, everything is being shaped right now in this moment, put together. Right now in this moment, if everything is changing, if everything is being shaped and constructed and fabricated, it's therefore changeable and shapeable. It's a verb, it's being fabricated. It's a process. It's an ongoing unfolding. Everything is changeable and shapeable and attendable and relatable. So does anything make more sense than cultivating the wholesome? 
cultivating the lovely, cultivating ways of looking and relating to experience that bring more well-being, that bring more ease to ourselves and to others and to the world that we share. Does anything else make more sense than that? And that's what we're doing. Yeah, moment by moment, even in those moments when it feels like a struggle. That's what we're doing. It's as beautiful as the summer in Finland, and thank you for all of those of you who are letting me see that. (laughs) Yeah, and maybe even more. So I just want to end with um, uh, a kind of a little story from a friend of ours who um, we spoke to a couple of weeks ago and, and found out that he had actually suffered quite badly with, with, um, with a virus, with COVID. And um, he was talking about the experience. He's a very, very long-term meditator, decades of experience. He was talking about this experience of really finding it incredibly painful and difficult to breathe. And he said in that experience for him, no meditation technique, no meditation history, Um, He said, the only thing that was there was love. The love um, that he had shared in his life. That was there. That was present. That was a resource. Yeah. So the love that he had shared uh, through his practice, through his being. Yeah. And I think for me, really brings up back to that sense of possibility sense of possibility as beautiful as a summer's eve in Finland and the big open spaces to cultivate the lovely to cultivate the wholesome to cultivate that which brings well-being and freedom to, to all of us So thank you for your listening and your participation in shaping and creating these reflections on the Dharma. And um, just have a quiet moment to bring this to a close. So may our practice together continue to nourish the well-being, the freedom and the possibilities for all beings in this world that we share. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.